And today is the very first Sunday of Advent. Can you believe it's already time for Advent? And actually, that's because of anything. If Advent is about anything, Advent is about time. It's about how we measure time. Um, specifically in the Christian calendar. This is the beginning, the first day of a brand new year. While the Gregorian calendar rolls over on January 1st, the Christian year begins on the first Sunday of Advent, four weeks before the celebration of Christmas. And I, I think this decision to begin the new liturgical year in the darkest moment, in the shortest days, uh, the kind of the dying moments of the old year, I think the church in all her wisdom was brilliant to make that decision because it's in this time of year and in this moment when the light seems to be fading and the days are getting shorter and shorter and it seems like there's less light to go around. It's in this moment that Christians wait for and long for and celebrate that light, this light that always casts out darkness. As the writer of John's gospel put it, the light shines in darkness and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. So in one of Advent's about time, it's about rebooting a, a new year, but it's also about time in this sense. We have this tendency to stay in rapid movement, going from thing to thing to thing to thing without any kind of resolution between them. We go from this moment and this conversation and this thing that happened and this traumatic news story and all of this stuff is happening at once and we're just sort of ping pong our way around. Our moments bleed together without being processed, the joys and the trauma. We don't process them, they sort of melt together in a way that doesn't allow us to fully feel them or to be fully present to them. This is evident to me every time I go to a store during any kind of holiday time. Have you ever noticed the way that stores blend their holiday aisles from season to season, not allowing one to end or even begin before the other is sort of ushered in? So in late September, and I took, a, I took a picture to show you, in late September, I walked into a Target that I was unfamiliar with, which is always exciting because I love Target, and, and an unfamiliar Target is like, you know, finding something new you've never, you didn't know existed. Um, and I was walking around looking for a specific thing. The store was different than I'm used to, and I turned the corner, and I was confronted with this image of Halloween. This is September. Of Halloween in one aisle, and directly next to it, across from it, was Christmas in another aisle. And it was almost like Christmas and Halloween were vying for cultural holiday dominance in September, right? Just post Labor Day. It's in this moment that these two holidays are sort of going neck and neck for our attention, our affection, and our, our, our money. Um, and this will happen too. If you, if you go to a store on December 26th, what you will find is suddenly the Christmas stuff 75% off, and then you'll find the Valentine's Day stuff being brought out so that we have now a, two and a, a month and a half, two months to prepare. And as soon as Valentine's Day is rolling by, then Easter is going. You're going to have Cadbury eggs and chocolate bunnies everywhere. Right? That's, that's sort of what we do. We move from one thing to the next that all bleeds and blurs together. And Advent offers us an alternative to this bleeding and blurring. Advent invites us to wait. I know, I, I, don't like, I don't like waiting. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't like waiting. Um, we have a new mail carrier and the schedule's a little off and I don't know exactly when the mail's gonna come and I get really excited about mail. It's one of those weird things, even if nothing, like nothing could show up, just, just like junk mail, I'm all about it. Um, and so waiting, like I, I don't like to wait for the mail. I'm not a good waiter. As a matter of fact, suspense kills me. 
um, if we're watching a movie and, I, and it's really suspenseful and I can't really kind of discern where it's going to go, I'll look up the plot. If I'm reading a book, I'll just jump a few chapters ahead to see, you know, take a peek. I actually watched the last episode of Breaking Bad first and then decided to go back and watch the rest of the show just so I could know where things were headed. Our inability, my inability or unwillingness to slow down and to sit in the moment, to wait, to prepare it all ultimately robs us of the present. And that's where Advent comes in. And that's where Advent is brilliant. And it comes to us first with the gift of hope. It insists that all of this stuff, this jumbled mess of reality that's going on around us, that's what it feels like sometimes, that all of it, no matter how it seems or appears, that it's actually going somewhere good. Even if the journey seems and is really, really uncertain. So before we jump into exploring Advent in kind of the context of hope, um, it's just, just sort of a, a thing I want to say on the front end as we talk about Christmas stories over the next several weeks. There isn't a Christmas story. I know what you're thinking. Yes, there is. It's in the Bible. I've been this. I've seen the play. I know the thing, right? There actually isn't a singular Christmas story. There are two Christmas stories. They show up in Matthew and in Luke. Um, Matthew was, was likely the second gospel written. Luke was likely the third gospel written. Um, and so in the eighth, ninth decades, maybe 10th decade, something like that, um, th that's when they emerge, right? So the first gospel, Mark, doesn't have a Christmas story. The last gospel, John, doesn't have a Christmas story. Um, and the way we tend to approach these two different stories is we combine them into, into kind of a Frankenstein's monster of a Christmas story. I, I know that's sort of an ugly metaphor, but like, it's what we do. Like, we take the bits and pieces that are familiar and we just sort of bring them all together, um, which in the end, what it serves to do is silences the unique claims of each author, because each author tells the story the way they tell it to make some unique claims that are unique to their story about who they think this baby being born in Bethlehem really is. So these two Christmas stories are just different. They, they just, they're just different. They are. Matthew centers on Joseph and involves the arrival after a couple of years of the Magi. Luke, the most familiar probably to us, if you grew up watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special and Linus comes out and the lights go dim and he recites Luke chapter two. Um, that's my favorite uh, Christmas story and that's um, the one we're probably most familiar with. It, Luke centers his story on Mary and there's a birth in the stable. There's no guest room at the inn and the shepherds show up and the angels appear to the shepherd. Like it's just two different stories. And what I hope we can do is allow those two stories to just be what they are without any need to say, well, this and this and this, we can reconcile it all. The point isn't to reconcile it. The, the, our, our spiritual ancestors who, who decided on what went where in the Bible didn't try to reconcile it. They just left the tension there. Like, these are two different stories making different claims. And we are, we're free to embrace them both um, if we're willing to do so. So I, I want to look today at a text um, in Matthew, Matthew chapter one. I want to look at Matthew's sort of the birth narrative. And it begins in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph, before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, for people in the ancient world, this really wouldn't be, you know, for us, it's this sort of like, because we bring all of this knowledge of biology and how babies are made and come into the world. We bring all of this. This is not a problem for people in the ancient world. And actually, there were lots and lots of people in the ancient world who were born out of a union of some sort of divine figure and a human being. 
right? That was pretty common. I mean, Caesar Augustus was claimed to be born of a union like that. You had people like Hercules. You had, you had all sorts of these figures from great wars and battles like at Troy. A lot of these figures, Alexander the Great, all of these figures sort of have this retconned, divine somehow involvement in their birth. So for us, we're like, whoa, that's not how babies are born. But in the ancient world, it was like, oh, yeah, this is, this is a pretty common motif. This is a pretty common thing for us to talk about. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous, a just man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as the angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. So in, in the, the story Matthew's telling, he, where, where Luke centers on Mary and there's an angel who appears to Mary and invites her into this process, um, sort of Matthew begins with Mary's already had whatever experience and now Joseph, he centers on Joseph. And Joseph, just like Joseph from the Hebrew Bible, um, is communicated with by God in dreams. And I think there's a definite wink nudge going on there. And this Joseph is told that whatever's going to happen, that, that God, this isn't sort of a mistake. Mary hasn't been um, cheating on it. Like, this is not a thing. What is happening here is that God is up to something in the world. And what I want to focus on today is Matthew's quote, because he, he says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet. So what is this quote about? And, and what does it mean for the story? Well, first, let's say that he's quoting from Isaiah 7.14. And Isaiah 7.14 has its own context that really matters if we're going to get the full effect, I think, of what Matthew's trying to say. So first, Matthew uses a pattern throughout his gospel, and it's this pattern of prediction and fulfillment. Um, and he uses it to shape his story of Jesus. So something happened. Jesus does something. Matthew says, this is what the prophets had foretold. And this is how Jesus sort of fulfilled that. And what happens is he's, he mines the Hebrew prophets. He goes back into them and starts digging through them and finding these nuggets. And he pulls those out to show how Jesus, that these prophets had made predictions and that Jesus fulfills them. Now, what we have to understand is nobody had ever read the prophets like this before. The Hebrew prophets were not, and we'll see this in a minute, were not predicting a distant future. They weren't predicting what would happen in future generations, or they weren't talking about what the Messiah would be like. They just weren't. These prophets were speaking and writing to their contemporaries, to contemporary situations, to things that were happening in the world. And they would often, they were bringing a word of warning that here, if you continue to practice unfaithfulness toward God, and if you continue to practice injustice toward your neighbor, this is going to end really, really poorly. But for early Christians like Matthew, their experiences of Jesus, and I'm not saying Matthew knew Jesus personally. Matthew wrote like in the 80s and Jesus died in the 30s. So Matthew probably wasn't even, but he, he's a part of this early Christian tradition where these stories about Jesus were being told and shared and handed down and, and they were grappling with meaning. And so what would happen is like these early Christians like Matthew, they had an experience of Jesus and it had thrown them for a loop because nothing had prepared them for this. 
Nothing had prepared them for a suffering Messiah. Nothing had prepared them for what Jesus actually looked like. And so they did what so many of us have done with our theology when we're confronted with an experience that no longer fits the mold that we were given. They took their experience, they went back to the scriptures, and they tried to make sense of it, which led to some creative interpretation of the Bible. Absolutely it did. Um, here's what Walter Brueggemann says, the, old, the Hebrew Bible scholar. In the witness to Jesus by the early Christians in the New Testament, they relied heavily on Old Testament anticipations of the coming Messiah. But Jesus didn't fit those anticipations. <laughs> I love this. Jesus didn't fit those anticipations very well, such that a good deal of interpretive imagination was required in order to negotiate the connection between the anticipation and the actual bodily, bodily historical reality of Jesus. But isn't that always the journey? An experience leads us back to wrestle with our theology and experience leads us back to wrestle with the Bible, wrestle with scripture, to wrestle with tradition, to say, man, our tradition has said this all along, but is it possible that our tradition has been, um, has essentially had things against it, like things it couldn't know, right? Things we've learned now because of science, things we've learned because of biology, things we've learned because we're, we're no longer sort of isolated, but we've, we've experienced the world, we've experienced outside the world. Like, is it possible that we've learned new things that then cause us to go back? And it's been happening since the very beginning, when early Christians like Simon Peter had this vision that 99% of the world is left out of this whole thing, and they have these visions that say, no, 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 what if? What if something bigger? What if there's a bigger story being told? And in Matthew's particular instance here, he's quoting, he's actually misquoting Isaiah 7.14. So I want to dig into that context, and then I'll come back to how Matthew misquotes it, and then we'll come back to maybe what he's trying to say. So in Isaiah 7, let me give you the context, because this is going to be important. It's set in the 8th century BCE. So you have CE, Common Era, Christian Era, where we are, um, first century where Jesus was. And then you have the 8th century BCE, so a long, long time ago. The, the people of, a, of Judah are under siege, and they're being attacked by two different nations. One is Aram, which is modern-day Syria, and the other is Israel. Now, to, to give you a quick recap, if you're not familiar with the timeline of the Hebrew Bible, after the death of King Solomon, who was David's son, so you had the great King David, and you have his son Solomon. After David's son Solomon died, there's a civil war, because Solomon's policies had been brutal and harsh, um, and the people asked for to, be, to be, have that alleviated, and Solomon's son refused, and so there was a civil war. The result was that the United Kingdom of David, the, the kingdom of Israel, was divided into two. Um, ten tribes to the north called Israel, and two to the south called Judah. That's where Jerusalem was located. So in this story, the northern kingdom of Israel and Aram, Syria, have allied themselves against Judah because um, they're trying to deal with a growing threat. There's a growing threat called the Assyrian Empire, which would eventually wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. So like, there, there's this real growing threat of this new world empire that's coming onto the scene. And Israel and Aram want to deal with it, and they want Judah, because they know they're not strong enough on their own, that if they bring Judah and their military power in, they may have a chance at throwing off, becoming uh, and, you know, uh, servants, vassals of, of the Assyrian Empire. And so they, they want Judah to join, and the way they're going to do that is they're going to lay siege, and either Judah's going to decide to join them, or they're going to conquer Judah, 
put in a puppet king and have access to their military power. So the Assyrian Empire is the, um, is the empire, the domination system du jour. And their approach, the, the, the king in reference in Judah was a guy named Ahaz. And so he, he knows he's in trouble. And there's this line in Isaiah 7-2 uh, that describes sort of the moment when they find out this siege is happening. When the house of David, Judah, when the house of David was told that Aram had become allies with Ephraim, Israel, their hearts and the hearts of their people shook as the trees of a forest shake when there is a wind. They don't have a ton of confidence here. And to make matters worse, Ahaz is um, a 20-year-old who has just newly minted on the throne of Judah, and he does what lots of us would do, and he panics. And he wants to appeal to the Assyrians to come help him. So the, the Israel and Aram are trying to force him to fight Assyria. He wants to ask Assyria to come help him fight them. Uh, and the thought is, if we can just get rid of them, and, and, and we can make this work. And the problem with that is, empires aren't known for doing favors. And, and so if, if Assyria shows up, and now Judah is on their radar. It's not going to be on their radar and just kind of exist over here. They're going to put their hooks into it. And they're going to sort of bring it into the fold. And they're going to lose their independence and their freedom. So the prophet Isaiah tries to persuade Ahaz and warn him to not follow this disastrous plan. That if he appeals to Assyria, it's going to go wrong. And instead, God has a message that through this prophet Isaiah, that the siege will fail, that Judah will not fall to Israel and Aram, everything's going to be okay. Don't panic. And so this is the context that Matthew borrows from. And here's the text. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask, for, ask a sign from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as the grave or as high as heaven, right? But Ahaz knows that in the tradition, there's this thing about, you know, you can't put God to the test. So Ahaz said, I won't ask. I won't test the Lord. I read the Bible, right? Like that's his opinion. Then Isaiah said, listen, house of David, listen, descendant of David on the throne of Judah. Isn't it enough for you to be my, isn't it enough for you to be tiresome for people that you're also tiresome before my God? Like you're wearing people out, but you're exhausting God. Therefore, you won't ask for a sign. The Lord will give you a sign. You're not going to ask for it. You're going to get it anyway. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son and she will name him Emmanuel. So this is the context a country under siege, a king afraid, a people afraid, wondering if they should reach out to this very dangerous growing empire and invite them in, which will completely destroy everything in the long run. And Isaiah says, don't do it. Look, 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 look. God will give you a sign even if you don't ask. The young woman is pregnant with a baby. Now in context, Isaiah 7:14 isn't predicting a birth that would come 750 to 800 years later. Would you agree? Like he's not saying, Ahaz, here's the sign. In 800 years, there's going to be a baby. How in the world would that be a sign for Ahaz? He wouldn't be alive to see it. All right, whatever this sign is about, it's about something that Ahaz would get and understand. And there's another interesting note. So I said Matthew mistranslates this. Um, Matthew actually doesn't quote from the Hebrew Bible because Hebrew is a dead language then. Matthew quotes from something called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. 
And when the, the Hebrew language was being translated into Greek, they had to make some changes, and, and words don't always translate evenly. And so notice what Matthew says, the way Matthew, and Matthew actually misquotes the Septuagint, but um, we could spend all day on that. Uh, now, all of this took place to, uh, so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Now, notice Isaiah's version. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and you'll name him Emmanuel. Did you catch the difference? Isaiah says a young woman, and the phrase is Alma in Hebrew, and it means a young woman, is pregnant, present tense. She is pregnant and is about to give birth to a baby, and that baby will be Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew says the the virgin, which is the Greek parthenos, which can mean virgin, but also can mean young woman. He says the virgin will become pregnant in the future tense. So if we could just pause for a minute, put the whole Jesus Christmas story out of our minds for a moment, and just ask the question, how would a young woman being pregnant provide King Ahaz with a sign that everything's going to be okay, that his kingdom would continue? Well, if this young woman happened to be his wife, which scholars believe to be the case, then this is not just any young woman pregnant, and this is not just any pregnancy, this is not just any baby. This pregnancy is a sign of hope because the next generation is being born. The person who will succeed Ahaz on the throne, his son who will come to know as Hezekiah, is about to be born. And what Isaiah is saying is, look, you're worried about being wiped out, but there's a baby coming. She's pregnant. She's going to give birth at any moment. And when that baby comes, what that means is that there's, there, there's this, this is going to keep going. That you can know that future generations of your ancestors, of your descendants, are going to sit on David's throne just as you are. The next generation, you can be hopeful they're about to take the stage. Don't, don't we feel this same hope when we see future generations now begin to step up, begin to speak out, begin to use their voices? The older I get, the more this enlivens and and just encourages me. When high schoolers begin advocating for gun reform, when teenagers begin advocating for action on climate change when adults have failed to, it, it fills me with such a sense of hope because they possess a moral courage that our current leaders do not and that so many of us have not. They possess a courage that they're willing to make hard decisions. They're willing to make sacrifices. They're willing to change the way they live, spend, shop. They're willing to change everything to build a more just and equitable world. I have to tell you, watching my own 10-year-old son find his voice as a young black man, seeing him develop a passion that insists that his life and that all black lives matter, fills me with hope that he will live and raise his family in a better, more equitable world than this one. That even if we don't, as as Dr. King said, we may not live to see that world. But the seeds are being planted even now. And as we look at those seeds being planted, it can give us hope. And Isaiah was saying to Ahaz, look, the family business is going to continue. Your son, Hezekiah, who we'll find out next week, incidentally, was a much, much, much better king than his father, is going to be born. So let's go back to Matthew. Why why would Matthew quote this story? What would he be trying to say to his audience? What would he be trying to say to us about Jesus? So let's pivot back. Why would he use this text, knowing knowing it was written 750, 800 years ago about a different situation? Why? Why would he even kind of change some of the language around to fit his own thing, to fit his own agenda? 
I think because he wanted to offer Jesus as a similar sign, a sign that no matter how bleak and despairing and painful the situations were, that they weren't hopeless. See, Matthew is writing a decade or so after Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans. He writes from the rubble. He writes as the world for the first followers of Jesus. So the first followers of Jesus weren't Christians, they were, they were Jewish. And so for Jewish people in the first century, when 70 happened, when 70 CE happened and the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, raised the temple, it altered their lives in a, in a way like, in some ways, even invoking 9-11 doesn't even begin. I mean, 9-11 has changed everything for us, right? It, it, it changed the way we travel. It's changed the way we feel. Safety, it's changed everything. This would have been infinitely more so. And so he's writing, and, and he's writing because people chose violence as their method of choice to get rid of Roman occupation. And yet Jesus had offered another path that was rejected, the path of nonviolence, the path of compassion, the path of peace. And it's almost like if Matthew is saying, look, it's not too late. The Christ is being born. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is hopeless. As bad as things seem, this Christ is still being born. This Christ is still Emmanuel, God, with us. I believe Christmas can still change the world because the world needs this kind of hope, especially right now. As we languish in a pandemic that has already taken 260,000 plus people, on top of the divisions and fractures and relationships in our communities right here in the U.S., as we live through the fallout of an election that some people still are not recognizing is over, as we fight to eradicate systemic racism and white supremacy that still oppress our country, that still plague our country and oppress our fellow citizens, as we think about the economic toll that all of this has taken on human beings who are trying to feed their families, um, especially in this season of the year when, when expenses aren't going down, they're skyrocketing. We need hope. We need hope. And I think that hope for those of us who have found ourselves on the Christian path, hope for us is that the Christ who came 2,000 years ago has never left us. That as we await the celebration of Christmas, we do so with the ever-present reality of God with us, God in us, and God through us. In that way, as we think about God in us, God with us, God in us, God through us, in that way, you and I, we become Emmanuel to one another. When we show up for one another, we become Emmanuel, God present with, for, and through one another. A disembodied spiritual being has never shown up for me, not once, never. But an embodied flesh and blood human being has time and time again. And I think that's the danger um, that occurs when we try to ground our hope in some sort of distant evacuation from the earth to the sky. That's not really about hope. That's just about avoidance. That's avoiding the problems in the world and hoping somebody else gets to deal with them. Hope is what happens when we show up for one another, when we roll up our sleeves and begin the work of healing, repairing, and mending the world. Hope is what happens when you and I choose to continue this work of being Emmanuel in the world, knowing that Jesus never left, that the Spirit of Christ has always been with us, empowering us, because Christ has no body but ours, no flesh and blood vehicles in the world but ours.
I was reminded this week of the words of uh, former President Barack Obama when he said, the best way to not feel hopeless is to get up and do something. The best way to not feel hopeless is to get up and do something. Might that have been Jesus' point all along? Maybe he wasn't saying, watch what I do and think I'm really great. (laughs) Watch what I do and build structures in my name and spend tons of money maintaining them and make sure you don't question the dogma and doctrine. Just watch and believe. It seems like what Jesus was saying is, see what I'm doing and then put it in flesh and blood in your own creative way. See what I'm doing, but don't get stuck there. Then go and figure out how you're going to do this in the world. And I think that's what hope is about. Hope is what happens when we choose to show up for one another, for strangers, for our neighbors, for our enemies, for the world. Hope is what happens when we roll up our sleeves and insist that we will be Emmanuel for each other when everything is falling apart. That God has never been somewhere else that God has always been looking for flesh and blood to embody in the world. And so we celebrate that in Jesus, we find, we, yes, we experience God with us. We experience God in us. And then we experience God in the world through us. May we accept that gift and that challenge of hope this Christmas and always.